Hey everyone, welcome to Between Us, the podcast that dives deep into the inner workings of our relationships in order to help you live a more authentic and meaningful life. I'm your host, Shadman. On the show today, I am so excited to be chatting with Sejal Thakkar. Dubbing yourself Chief Civility Officer, Sejal is not your average employment law attorney. Her more than 15 years of experience advising clients, human resources personnel, and legal counsel regarding sound, standard employment practices uncovered a need and personal passion for bringing more proactive, relevant, and impactful workplace training programs to her clients and her teams. Her highly, her highly experiential customized workshops tailored to executives, managers, and individual contributors bring the courtroom to the training room in an interactive, engaging environment that favors human stories over compliance checklists. Sejal, I am so glad we're finally getting to connect and chat today. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yes, this has been a conversation in the makings for, I think, a couple of months now. So for the audience's context, Sejal and I, we met as a result of another guest on the podcast, Raj, where we talked about skyrocketing your career. And Raj introduced me to Sejal. And, you know, I'm so fortunate that Raj made this introduction because I think a lot of the conversation that we're going to have today regarding bias in the workplace, you know, Sejal, with your background in law and actually training different organizations and workforces to uncover a lot of the unco unconscious and implicit biases that are prevalent in the workplace and learning how to empathize better as human beings, not just thinking our workplace relationships as those that are merely transactional in terms of trying to get work done and you know, really just getting more attuned with our own upbringing and our own, how we grew up perceiving different people, different pe people from different backgrounds. And so today, you know, being able to uncover the bias in the workplace, I'm so excited to be chatting about this topic with you today. And so it's kind of to kick things off, I'd love if you can kind of share your own background, your own story of, I guess, kind of what got you interested in law, what got you interested in, you know, uncovering this need for tackling bias in workplace that's so prevalent. Yeah, absolutely. But I have to give a shout out to Raj, right? Raj Supermeyer, yeah. thank you so much for this introduction. I, I totally, I, I think he's a, a total rock star and I support him and everything. And so I'm so glad that he inter uh, introduced us. So yeah, so, you know, I always knew I was going to be a lawyer. I mean, I, I think I was around eight or nine when my dad told my mom at the dinner table that she's going to be an attorney because she keeps asking all these questions, right? So I think most kids ask a lot of questions. I have an eight-year-old and he definitely asked a lot of questions, but I was one of those annoying kids that asked way too many questions. So going to law school was something that I always knew I was going to do. Um, and, and so I'd always planned on that. But I think another important part to my story is that I, at a very young age, have gone through harassment, discrimination. Um, my parents are immigrants from India. So they moved here from India in 1974 to Chicago. And I grew up in a predominantly Italian neighborhood. With, we were the only Indian family there. So, you know, from an early age, I dealt with harassment, discrimination, bullying. And so there was always this um, social justice aspect of my personality that I, I really wanted to help other people see different perspectives. And, um, and, you know, I don't blame those kids for 
doing what they did. It wasn't kind at the time. I was angry and really upset, but now I can look back on it and say, you know, they are a product of their environment. And so that really fuels a lot of the work I do right now is realizing that when we have these kind of biases, that they're not one dimensional, right? It impacts all of us. And so if you've only mm-hmm. been exposed as a child to one viewpoint, you're going to adopt that viewpoint unless and until you get a different perspective and change your opinion. So along the way, that became sort of my, my I say my role is helping people see different perspectives. And then also on top of that, you know, my parents were like all immigrants from in, you know, from different places, but they didn't speak English. And so I was expected to be, you know, uh, like completely Indian at home and then be something different outside of the home. So Mm -hmm. early on, I was playing that interpreter about trying to explain this is the American culture. Like we go to prom, we do sleepovers. And so, you know, being in in between the Indian and the American culture also helped me see how we're so different from each other. And um, and then when I finally did become an attorney, I was expecting to, um, you know, initially I was thinking I was going to be representing the person that was being harassed or discriminated against, but it turned out that I actually being, I ended up being a defense attorney. And so that's where I really understood the value of doing the work that I'm doing and educating people on bias. And we can talk a little bit more about that as well. Yeah. I I think a lot of like what you touched on here, the bias that we grow up with is a result of a lot of our childhood experiences and how we carry forth. And a lot of the times we don't even necessarily realize the biases that we're actually carrying with us from our childhood. And I think that's something we'll touch on a little bit later. And so kind of transitioning now from a child now to becoming a defense attorney and from your school days, how did you maintain your own, you call it this personal inner ninja, if you will, you know, how did you maintain that? And how do you now go and do that same exact sort of practice for workplaces to transform them into this idea and this place that you call civility. And I'd love it if you can also touch on this topic of civility. Sure. And, you know, to be honest with you, when I was growing up and going through, you know, being a victim of bias and dealing with the harassment and discrimination, there wasn't a lot of support back then. There really wasn't. I mean, we're talking about early 80s when I grew up, right? And there wasn't anybody to talk to. There wasn't anybody at school I can talk to. We were the only Indian family, so there was no support. And so I started, I was fighting back. I was getting angry. I was, you know, standing up for myself. I was getting in trouble at school for defending myself. So I was kind of going down this path where I I realized early on that if I continue this, I'm not going to end up in a good place. And so the only person I really had was my father who Mm -hmm. would have these conversations with me about you know, trying to show me. And at the time I would be, I would get all upset with him, right? About like, you don't understand what I'm going through. Mm -hmm. Um, But he was the one that really tried to help me see that, you know, we still need to stay civil in these situations. And he always, you know, I I did a TEDx talk recently where I talk about some of the lessons he's taught me. And two of the major lessons he taught me is that, look, we're all capable of being hurtful and uh, treating others badly. And so he would remind me of that, you know, and And the other part of it, too, is, you know, there was something you would always repeatedly tell me, and maybe back then I didn't really understand it as much, but that, you know, the people that hurt other people, they themselves are hurting inside, you know, Mm -hmm. and that took a while for me to really, truly understand that one. But I, I used those types of conversations to really help me get through 
And so the reason why I, I call myself the chief civility officer, then fast forward to today, is because as an attorney, I've seen all kinds of incivil in the workplace. And I, I, when I talk about incivility, what I'm really talking about there is anything, I, I call it the uncivil behavior spectrum, right? So that includes a whole range of behaviors, anything from your rude, insensitive behaviors, your unwelcome, dismissive behaviors, your microaggressions, all the way to your abusive conduct, bullying type of behaviors. And then if you continue, you end up in the illegal behavior category, like your illegal harassment or discrimination. So incivility, the way I define it, is that whole spectrum of behaviors. Well, as an attorney, what I saw was most organizations were waiting around to deal with these issues once the complaint got filed or once the lawsuit got filed. And it's too late for us to deal with it at that point. We really need to be proactive and start equipping people and empowering people to deal with these situations when we're first starting up, when they're microaggressions or they're rude or unprofessional behaviors. And so, you know, it was too late for me to help anybody once the lawsuit was filed. So that's why I started my company three years ago to really work with companies proactively to say, let's focus in on not legal compliance, but let's focus in on truly creating cultures where everybody is treated with dignity and respect and civility. And so that's, you know, really when I say chief civility officer, it's to say I'm out there advocating for organizations to make civility a core value for their mm -hmm. organization. So just like you have your diversity and your inclusion, I will, I'm, I'm encouraging organizations to make civility a separate core value because a lot of times these things get all thrown together. Mm -hmm. And then yep. you, you think everyone's going to, but they're different and their goals are different with all three of those and the resources and the time and the commitment and the people that should be driving those need to be different as well within the organization. Yeah, you, you definitely do see that case where, yeah, you do mix all of those together, diversity, inclusion, and civility kind of comes into the mix, maybe isn't as talked about as much. Why do you think civility is kind of more so on the outskirts and not really talked about as much? in the workplace or resources aren't fed towards that aspect and that value? I think it's been because the mentality has been legal compliance. I mean, it's all been about, you know, I, I mean, I, I say this on so many of my podcasts that I've done, but it's, it's true. It's like, why are we only training the supervisors on sexual harassment? Why aren't we training anybody else? You know, until the law just changed in California a couple of years ago, well, now we said we have to train everybody. But up until that point, and even now, it's like, why are we only training on sexual harassment? What about racial harassment? What about religion harassment? What about sexual orientation discrimination, right? So it's mm -hmm. always been that way. And that's what really frustrated me as an attorney. It's like, no, no, no. We need to draft our policies different. We have to train our employees different. And it's like not about just training your leaders. Everybody needs to get trained. It's, it's kind of like, if you think about it just from a very basic level, Right. If you put all different people in a room together, you can't just expect everybody to know how to get along. We have to right. set up standard of what's expected and what's not. And the other piece of that, too, is I've done a lot of that legal compliance training and I still do. Right. I still do a lot of sexual harassment mm -hmm. training, but I broaden it because it doesn't work when you tell people do this and don't do that. Right. When you have mm -hmm. to explain that there's a lot of gray areas and right. And, and a lot of it is it's it's. You know, I don't like using the term soft skills, but a lot of it is teaching people how to communicate, 
how to resolve conflict and what to do when you find yourselves in a situation where somebody says a, engages in a microaggression. You know, there's and there's so much vocabulary right now, like bias, microaggressions, all these words that people are throwing around. But I think those definitions have gotten, you know, the media and, and we just hear so much where the I don't think people really truly understand those definitions in the ways that they should be. And that's one of the reasons why I did that. TEDx talk is because the word bias. I'm like, why is mm-hmm. it's become like this thing? And I'm like, no, this is actually preventing us from making progress because people don't understand the bias and they're not willing to understand their own and, and figure out what to do about it because they think it's this bad thing. And there are situations right. where it is a bad thing, but a majority of the time it's not a bad thing. Right. So. Right. Yeah. It, it's weird because I have this conversation with friends even where or trying to think about, you know, we talk about this stuff about how do you actually go about communicating in a workplace when things do get a little bit contentious or how do you go about interacting with individuals that you don't necessarily see eye to eye with. And it's almost as if you're fending for yourself, having to learn all of these different behaviors that are quote unquote acceptable in a workplace when it should be something that I think, like you mentioned, like workplaces should center a value around this idea of civility of teaching employees how to how to properly behave with one another because a lot of, and I think I, I've heard you say this, a lot of the times the behaviors that employees take into the workplace are results of like their childhood experiences, mm-hmm. these unconscious biases. It's so true. It's so true. And, and this is why, like, you know, when I first started being an attorney and I was, I've been a defense attorney my whole career. I mean, up until eight years ago when my son was born, I was actually in court. So I was representing Uh, managers that had been accused of sexual harassment, of discrimination. So I was arguing cases in front of juries, defending them. And I just, I spent more time actually educating people on, on how to, you know, communicate, how to resolve conflict. And I saw such a huge gap in what organizations were doing, you know, and, and, and really middle managers and frontline supervisors just didn't have the proper skills or training. You know, it's like mm-hmm. a lot of times company, and this is a huge gap, and it still is to this day, at least in my experience, is we're not spending enough time developing our leaders. You know, they're getting promoted mm-hmm. up because they meet their numbers and they do a good job at what they do, but that's different than actually managing people. And right. companies are not spending enough time developing their leaders. And that creates liability, not just a legal liability. But also just, I think people are done. I mean, this last year, people are, 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 their tolerance level for putting up with incivility in the workplace has gone down significantly. And so if we don't spend time developing our leaders and properly empowering our, our talent, I mean, it's hard enough getting good people in the door. And now if everyone starts to walk out, you're not going to survive. You're just not. Right, right. And I'm so glad that this last year has just given the impetus for all of us to not put up with a lot of this incivility that does occur in the workplace. And, and kind of as a good segue, what you've seen as a result in organizations is there's been a lot of development of unconscious bias training or uh, more resources being fed towards diversity, equity, inclusion programs, uh, just given how turbulent this last year has been. But I, I still sense there's something that's missing even with this extra effort, extra resources being put towards those different initiatives, you know, what are you finding is still kind of that missing link to truly drive inclusive employee, employee engagement? 
Yeah, and there's there are several missing links, right? I mean, the 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 most important one is there is no psychological safety, right? So if you don't have psychological safety, and then you throw a bunch of people in a room and say, okay, now you got to learn about your biases, and we have to make everybody feel included, it's not going to work, right? And so I saw this on on LinkedIn the other day. Somebody said, oh, well, these unconscious bias trainings don't work, and I go, of course, nothing's going to work unless you have psychological safety, and it's not a one time thing, right? So right. when I talk about psychological safety, I'm, I'm really talking about creating an environment where people feel safe, right? To be able to say, hey, you know, what you did right there is offending me or is making me feel uncomfortable. To be able to have these conversations without fearing that the company is going to retaliate against you. Because the, the reality is, and statistics support this, is that three out of four people don't report if they're being harassed at work. This is a huge problem. I mean, if people are afraid to talk about being harassed, how can HR, how can leadership do something to address those problems in that environment? You just can't. And Mm -hmm. so these behaviors continue and then it turns into a toxic work environment. So the number one missing link is that you can have 100 diversity and inclusion and unconscious bias trainings, but if you don't have psychological safety, and, and the problem is now it's even harder when you have remote work employees working remotely and people are not there face to face. It takes longer to build trust. It takes mm-hmm. longer to build that psychological safety. And you really need to commit time and resources to doing that, like team building and, and realizing that you can't just get on a Zoom call and jump right into business. Right. And right. there's just things that you have to actively do to create that safety when people are working remotely. and. Unfortunately, what I'm seeing is that a lot of cult, lot of organizations are placing their culture on the back burner because they're thinking, oh, well, we're not in front of each other, so it's no big deal. And I'm like, no, no, no. It's a bigger deal when people right. are not in front of each other because they don't feel connected. They feel disconnected from their culture, right? So psychological safety is one of the first things. And then the second thing is accountability systems, right? I see that, you know, You can have all the policies in the world. You can have the best procedures. But if people are not being held accountable and there's no accountability systems in place that when people do get, you know, do complain about somebody being, you know, uncivil or harassing somebody else and the organization isn't doing anything about it or holding that person accountable, you're not going to have, again, going back to psychological safety where people are not going to trust. So, for example, if you've got leaders that are out there talking about how culture is a number one priority for them. But then behind the scenes, their actions are not matching up with what they're saying. That's not going to be creating psychological safety. And so we need to have Mm -hmm. accountability systems and not just at the top, but at all layers of your organization where we're going to treat everybody the same. And so, um, so that's another piece. And then I think that just training as a whole, needs to be revamped. You know, a, a lot of companies, are their policies are still st- very legal compliance focused and they're not really focused in on creating a robust plan. I think companies are realizing this more and more, but there is no one size fits all solution. Every culture is different. And so you really have to look at your training and it's got all, it's got to have different components. At a very minimum, it's got to have diversity inclusion. It's got to have civility. And it's got to have unconscious bias and microaggression training. It's got to have bystander intervention training. It's got to have ally skills training. So training has to change 
And um, and then I would one other thing I would just add is I think that employees need to be empowered more. So you cannot leave the employees out of it. They need to understand that they are a part of the culture and their actions directly or indirectly contribute to the culture. And so employees absolutely have to be a part of that equation. Yeah, exactly. I, I love all of these different facets that you pointed out because what I've seen in different policies and procedures is, yeah, a lot of those elements are actually missing and it's more so people want to put effort and resources towards those other aspects, such as like bystander, bystander training as an example. But in reality, it's not actually being instantiated through an actual program, through some sort of training that's being built up. And I'm a little bit curious also from your perspective, do you feel as if this changes the way in which you should develop these training resources, having gone from an in-person culture to now primarily remote this last year? Or should it still be one and the same? Yeah, no, it's got it. And, and, you know, one of the other things is when we talk about diversity, for example, I throw a broad definition, right? So I'm talking about just everything about us is different. We grow up differently. Our religions, our color, our races, all of that is different. And so trainings have to change. Let's say our personalities are different, right? If you're, I'm an extrovert. I mean, I do trainings for a living. Some people look at me and they're like, Sejal, you couldn't pay me enough to do a training like that in front of people, right? They're not, that's not their thing. So trainings have to be customized to your people as well. You know, when we first started doing these online trainings, everybody was like, oh, we got to require everybody to have their videos on, right? For the trainings. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. there's some people that are just not comfortable with having their cameras on. So I don't think you can have these blanket rules. I think you have to really take a look at it. And it's not a one-time training that's going to solve right. it. It's got to be consistent. You have to figure out like micro learnings and figure out, you know, maybe we send them, you know, text messages or reminders or, you know, have them look at a TED talk. You've got to vary it up and it's got to be consistent for everybody. You know, um, one of the, one of the companies that I'm working with right now, it's like they rolled out a really robust training plan and but you got to evaluate that. You got to go back and talk to people about what works for them, what doesn't. Take that feedback and then continue to improve your plan. It's it's unfortunately it's something that's con- needs continuous improvement because your people are going to change. The time is going to change. So if something happens, for example, the Asian hate stuff we're dealing with right now, mm-hmm. you cannot act like business is normal if you've got Asian employees on your staff. You have to take that into consideration. So. I just created an ally skills training specifically for those, you know, employers that need ally skills training that have a lot of Asian employees that are needing help on what do we do when we're outside of work and we see, you know, an older Asian person getting harassed, how do we respond, right? So your training has to change according to what's going on in the world as well. You can't just say, we're not going to, we're going to show up at Zoom and we've got five Asian people that are struggling with what's going on in the world, you can't just go on and ignore the realities of what's going on. Yeah, definitely. And I I know organizations are taking those small steps. I know I've personally been a part of like a conversation with during this past past couple of months where like, yeah, some of our Asian members from our business were speaking on their own personal experience and how they've been personally affected. And it's crazy how some people's eyes are completely open. They're like, they never thought this, this was even something that even happened to people with it, that their own colleagues. It's like something that you never talked about. But I think like you mentioned, being able to customize these different programs and these different trainings to the times that we're in, it's like 
in that idea of continuous improvement, I think a lot of times organizations and leadership are so focused on the business and continuously improving the business when in reality, business is built on the people. So you have to also continuously improve upon the people's experience too. And it feeds up to the business, but at the end of the day, if the people are happy, everything else is going to fall into place uh, in, in accordance. Absolutely. Yeah. And so you, you've touched on it already quite a bit, but I'm a little bit curious to kind of delve a little bit more into, you know, learning more about some tangible ways that you found that are most effective. Like you've talked about this customization of training and awareness programs. I'm curious if there's any other ways that you found that truly are more effective at combating a lot of these unconscious biases that are taking place in the workplace that most organizations haven't done, I guess, prior to this year, and even some still aren't doing, even having, you know, been a year into this tumultuous time. Yeah, you know, um, the number one thing would be, I think it's very important for everyone to understand what microaggressions are and and how to interrupt microaggressions when they're happening in the workplace. So, you know, I, I, um, I've done a lot of training in this area and I realized that, first of all, people don't understand unconscious bias and how that can unintentionally create certain behaviors, which are microaggressions. But people just don't know how to respond in those situations. And so that's got to be a critical component of how do we interrupt somebody when we're in a meeting and they engage in a microaggression. So how do we respectfully, professionally, I like to say, put that person on notice? It's mm-hmm. not about judging anybody. It's not about shaming or canceling anyone. You know, I'm hearing a lot about this cancel culture thing. I'm not a fan of that. Um, I mean, I, I think there's different ways to deal with situations. And I think it really requires education. But along with that, how do we interrupt microaggressions? I think there needs to be a heavier component on bystander intervention. You know, I think we, we tell people, okay, you know, you should just follow your complaint process and report it up. I think that approach is flawed. I think we want to empower, empower people to deal with these situations one-on-one with one another, especially if it's like microaggressions or rude, unprofessional behavior. This all doesn't need to go up to HR. This is, these are things that if we equip our employees properly, they can resolve one-on-one within themselves. Mm-hmm. So I would suggest that we really put the burden and that's where it should be is on bystanders, right? So for example, if I'm the one that's being, you know, if I'm getting microaggressions hurled at me on a daily basis, it's not my responsibility to educate everybody else. I, my responsibility is to take care of myself, right? And, mm-hmm. and make sure yep. I'm okay. It's really the people that are standing around witnessing, observing this behavior going on. It's their responsibility to intervene and, and educate that person or put that other person on notice. Because most people, when you put them on notice, if it's truly a microaggression, right? Or if it just slipped out and you made a mistake, you know, we're all human beings, we make mistakes, then they're going to apologize and they're going to change their behavior. Mm-hmm. Now, if they don't change their behavior and that behavior continues, now the organization needs to get involved, right? Because now this is a behavior that's not aligned with their cultural values. That's not what we want in our culture. And that's when we need everyone to follow their complaint process and report it up. And now HR and the lawyers can deal with it. But I think there needs to be more of the bystander intervention training piece added to a lot of what companies are doing. And obviously, you know, I'm not going to say this again, but I will unconscious bias training, right? That is critical component because we are all different. We all bring different things, like you said, from our childhood 
and it's normal. Mm-hmm. Having these unconscious biases are normal. It's a part of how our brain works. So it's not about getting rid of them or changing who we are. It's about figuring out what they are so that we can put into place strategies to help us minimize the harm that could result from these unconscious biases. Yeah, I love this. I love this. Yeah, I think the bystander training is a huge component because I think when you feel as if it's not so personal on just you when you're experiencing it and you feel as if there's a community around you that can help you address the issue and like you mentioned, put someone on notice of those microaggressions or those rude behaviors that they may not be aware of, it cultivates the going back to that idea of um, psychological safety, creating that space where you don't feel so isolated and segmented um, on an island, so to speak, and you're uh, there to fend for yourself. Yeah. And one other thing I would just add to that too is, is on that component of psychological safety, it, it, it's, you know, some organizations have these complaint processes where if you feel like you're being harassed, you report it and you go through it. We need to have that. But I think a lot of organizations also need to create uh, a welcoming environment for things that don't rise to act- legally actionable things, right? So mm-hmm. microaggression. Somebody engages in a microaggression, a bystander should be able to call somebody and say, hey, by the way, we need help with this. And it doesn't turn into this big old investigation or something that's going to require discipline, right? We want to encourage people to deal with these issues early on. But I feel like a lot of times it gets caught in this limbo between HR and the lawyers. Well, it's not legally actionable. So the lawyers are saying, HR, you deal with it. And HR is like, well, it's, we don't know what to do with this. So, so abusive conduct bullying is a perfect example. In California, there is no co- legal cause of action for bullying, right? You could bring a harassment complaint, but you can't bring a bullying complaint in court. And when you bring a harassment complaint, you're limited to certain protected categories, race, religion, sexual orientation. In California, we're under the Fair Employment Housing Act. We've got a whole list of categories that you have to show that that harassment was related to. Well, if you're being bullied at work for one of those something that's not on that list, for example, weight. I've dealt with a lot of cases in my career where people, not a lot, but a few cases in my career where people felt that they were being bullied because of their weight. Weight is not a protected category. So what does this person do if they're being bullied at work because of their weight? If they go to HR, HR is going to say, I'm going to send this to the lawyers. The lawyers are going to say, that's not protected by the law. You deal with it. Mm. HR doesn't know what to deal with it. So there needs to be more robust reporting channels for things that don't rise to being legal, that organization is still going to take very seriously and address in a timely manner. Yeah, I think building on these incremental steps here, I think is what you're getting at, which is something I think in all facets of life, I'm a huge proponent of building incrementally, but in the workplace, building incrementally on these behaviors that are not acceptable, learning how to approach those situations and being able to not just stick to, like you were mentioning, kind of the legal compliance checklist items of how do you approach it? Oh, it's not on the checklist. We can't really handle it. You got to figure it for yourself. Well, there needs to be some sort of well-defined standard practice are, whether implicit or formally drafted out even, that is established to cultivate that psychological safety that you're mentioning. And so Sejal, this has been such a great conversation. What I, what I like to do at the end of each and every single one of my episodes with guests is this final segment I call the three keys to relationship. 
And so this is a segment where I ask guests three questions to kind of gauge their own insight on relationship management. And these questions pertain to any and all relationships. So with your friends, family, romantic partners, uh, workplace colleagues, what have you. And these aren't quick fire questions either as well. So I'd love to hear you expand. And so the first question I have is, what's your number one relationship red flag? Yeah, dishonesty. That's an easy one. I, one of my core values is trust, right? So when I see someone being dishonest and their actions are not lining up with their words, that's a major red flag. And that reply, that applies to all of my relationships, any one of those categories. Mm -hmm. I'm, I just, I have a very low tolerance with dealing with people that are just dishonest, right? And, and I know we can get into that whole discussion about what does that mean, but I think I'll just leave it. I'll leave it there <laughs> no, I think everyone listening or watching can completely relate to that. And especially, yeah, that, that thing you mentioned about words not matching up with your actions. You can tie it back to this entire conversation about workplace relationships and, oh, we're talking about, you know, cultivating a very safe environment, but is it being reflected in the action? So yeah, dishonesty. I think everyone can relate to that. And so the second question is a little bit of a converse to that. On the other hand, what's the most underrated relationship quality in your opinion? Underrated. Integrity. Mm. I feel like that's underrated. You know, I, I, I think every book you read on leadership will say, we want to have leaders with integrity, but I, I, the reason why I say it's underrated is because I don't think people really know or define integrity and then follow their actions with it, right? So we're looking at the other side of the spectrum is, is that I think we need to put, the, put that back on the radar of integrity and what that means. And as leaders, especially, we are role models for everybody that's looking at our actions, right? What we post online. I mean, right now, everybody's posting online. And I think sometimes leaders forget that you still have to act with integrity when you're out there. And so some, you know, I've seen some leaders say, well, it's my social media page, page so I can post whatever I want. And I go, no, it doesn't work like that. Because if one of your employees sees that and then they come to work the next day and they say, well, I'm not going to work with him because he took that stand on this position. Now the employer has to get involved, right? So mm -hmm. I think integrity is something that we need to bring back into every conversation and especially when we're doing more leadership development. Yeah, I couldn't agree anymore. It's a, it's a wishy-washy kind of topic like you were mentioning that has really gone to the wayside and yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. It definitely needs to come back up to the forefront. And the third and final question I have is what's your own mantra or slogan, if you will, for how you approach relationships or even just life at large in general? I, I, you know, this goes back to how we define success in our lives. Right. And I, the way that I define it, and this comes out and in, in hopefully in everything I do is I try my hardest. Right. So my mantra is my success is defined by me trying my hardest. I can't control the outcomes of what's going on out there. I can't control, I wish I could, because I would change a lot of things, but I can control what I do. And so at the end of the night, I can sleep if I know I brought my 100% to the table. And so I always remind myself when I'm feeling frustrated or sad or, or scared about the future, I always remind myself that as long as I keep bringing myself, my 100% to the things that I'm collaborating or committed to, 
then that's success, right? And and so I've let go of the whole being attached to the outcome mentality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. I love that. That's something that I think I myself have been trying to do. I think hopefully a lot of the listeners and viewers are also either have already accomplished themselves or on their way to accomplishing it, being able to let go of the things you can't control and just control what is in your in your own control, like your work ethic, your discipline, how much effort you're putting into your interactions, your your intentionality about the way you go and interact with others. And so I absolutely love that. And I think, you know, going back to the to the entire topic of this episode, yeah, being able to control what you can control, understanding in the workplace there are certain things that are within your control. And a lot of times we feel as if it's not, you know, when it comes to the culture that we cultivate, a lot of it's really in our in our own hands, like you were mentioning about developing these training and awareness programs, these resources we're putting towards these different initiatives and kind of cultivating a more customized experience given the times we're in, given experiences the employees are going through themselves and continuously improving upon those uh, programs. It's all within our control. And if you, and if you, if you're able to continuously improve and put that into your, into your own batting field, the results will eventually come to speak for themselves. And so, you know, Sejal, this has been such a great conversation. You know, this has been, there's so much more we can go on and talk about. I'm sure we can go on for another hour or two, but I do want to be respectful of your time. And so, you know, for, for the listeners and viewers, if they're interested in learning more about you, I know you, like you mentioned, you released your, your TEDx just recently. If they're interested in learning more about you, the work that you're doing with Train Extra, you know, how can individuals best get connected with you? Yeah, so LinkedIn is a great spot. I'm, that's the only social media platform that I'm currently on. So, you know, follow me on LinkedIn. I, am, I take it like very seriously to find good resources on any of the issues that we've talked about. Mm-hmm. So I'm always posting valuable resources in the community. And um, the other place you could look is my company website, trainextra.com. And then, yes, please, please, please check out my TEDx talk. It's super important to me to raise awareness on this topic and then watch it and then share it with everybody. And let's let's literally help people. Let's change our future. We can do it if we all get on. I call it in my video. Let's all put our hats on and, and make a difference in the way that we interact with each other. Yep. And so for listeners and viewers, I'll be linking all of those down below in the show notes or description if you're watching this. And so you know, especially check out the TEDx talk, you know, the hat hat analogy in terms of how you go about opening up and broadening out your perspective on people's experiences and their background, I think is a really interesting point that Sejal brings up into that, into that TEDx talk. And it's going to open up a lot of people's minds in terms of how they go about interacting. And so definitely, yeah, like she mentioned, share it. And on her LinkedIn, she shares a lot of great resources uh, on LinkedIn. If you're interested in learning more about all these different topics we've talked about today. And so Sejal, this has been, I I think we've only really touched the tip of the iceberg here. Um, There's so much more that goes on into this, but, you know, I think this is definitely a great jumping pad for folks who are, you know, maybe they're in the actual D&I program at their, at their workforces and they're maybe, oh, this is kind of sparking a new idea into their minds Our employees, you know, learning about, you know, the bystander effect and, and learning how do I actually approach these situations? Oh, I should take responsibility. So a lot of great tidbits here. And so I, I, you know, I want to leave some time here at the end for you, Sejal, to like leave any other lasting messages or pieces of wisdom, inspiration for the audience before signing off today. Sure. And thank you again for having me. This was a a great conversation. And the only thing that one last thing I'll add is, look, it, it starts with each and every single one of us. You know, if 
we are really at a turning point right now in where we are in history. I mean, it's, it's tragic that we've had to go through what we've had to get through to get to this point. But we're here and we have this amazing opportunity to really change the future. Maybe we won't see it in our lifetime, but for our future generations. And but it requires that each and every single one of us realize how we are, you know, how we're bringing ourselves every single day and, and to not be complicit, to really take control of our actions, our behaviors, our beliefs, and make sure that we're not harming the people in our lives, you know, and when, when you start to, to, to approach it from that mentality and realize that you can do something about it, it is magical how the universe just starts to line everything up. And I, I, you know, I, the reason why I say we start with each one of us is because we care about ourselves. We care about our family. We care about our future. And so if we just start working on ourselves to figure out how we can improve our own relationships, it's going to spread to everybody, right? And the impact that we're going to have is going to be huge. Thanks for tuning in to this episode, everyone. Remember, we don't make relationships. We make relationships better. <laughs>